Welcome, dear listener, to Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Set aside some moments now and take an adventurous ride on a journey into the psyche of some talented writers. They will dig into your being and titillate you. Oh, I love that word, titillate. While the stories may not all take place in the heartland, I am delivering them to you from the heartland. My intention is to strike fear and confusion into the mind, soul, and yes, the heart. This is Fear from the Heartland. Hello, Heartlanders, and welcome to Season 4, Episode 5 of Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Hey, Heartlanders, you guys patrons yet? Visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to join the club. You'll get ad-free versions of this and all our other podcasts, including hundreds of standalone releases from our audio archives dating back to 2012. It's a great way to show your support and you get a whole lot for it. Well, Heartlanders, quick sidebar. We here at the Fear from the Heartland show and the entire Chilling Tales for Dark Nights team are excited for the changes that 2023 will bring. We'd like to present one of those changes to you tonight. It's a brand new year and we have brand new merchandise for everyone. My beautiful wife, Nikki, overhauled our selection of Fear from the Heartland goodies that you can take with you anywhere. Shop and explore from over 70 products, all featuring the brand new Fear from the Heartland logo design, including stickers, pins, mugs, clothing, and so much more. To check it out, just click the New Year New Merch link in the description. Titillate. Thanks. Had to get that out of my system. Let's get after it. The vast majority of people get to go through their lives without knowing that something terrible lurks just beneath the thin veneer of normality they encounter on a daily basis. Sometimes, reality gets thin, worn down, and when it does, dark things come crawling through the gaps. The uncanny man is watching and waiting for a chance to twist our fragile reality into the design of his endless animosity. There is no escape from the dark once it has a taste of you. And now for your indulgence, Anomaly. The first reported incident was an alleged homicide in which a man killed five people in the master bedroom, dissected them in a meticulous fashion, and vanished with the lungs, vocal cord, and epiglottis of all five of the five victims. The killer, a man named James Jones, was originally apprehended at the site, but escaped during his arrest and has not been seen since. William Sunderland was reading from the file as we approached the site of the latest anomaly. We had all read the manuscript on our own, but this final part of the mission briefing was a tradition at this point. He continued, The second incident happened three years later. A family, the Ventelli's from out of town, bought the O'Keen residence from the bank that had taken custody after the passing of the original owner and his wife. Due to the secluded area and the nature of small-town gossip, the property had sat empty and unmonitored over those interim years, so we have very few incident reports from that time frame. Nothing more substantial than reports of lights and windows. William cleared his throat. Seven months after moving into the house, the new residents made a call to the local police, saying that they had heard someone in their home while they were sleeping. The police came out to investigate but couldn't find any evidence of things being amiss. They decided the noise was raccoons on the roof, filed the report, and forgot about it. But over the course of the next three weeks, the Ventelli family 
would make 10 more reports covering everything from strange noises to sightings of figures moving about inside the house at night. Not sure what to make of things, but suspecting that the Ventelli family was looking to try and cash in on the history of the property, the police agreed to send out a cruiser to watch over the house at night for a while, not expecting anything to come of it. The first night of monitoring was silent. The officer on duty saw nothing, and the Ventellis didn't report anything amiss. The second night was a different matter. At around 1 a.m. on the second night of surveillance, the officer keeping watch on the house saw someone moving through the rooms of the first floor of the house. As part of the surveillance process, the Ventellis were not to go anywhere without switching on lights so that they could be seen from outside and to differentiate them from any hostile third parties. The officer figured that someone had forgotten the rules or was just trying to get him worked up, but he still called in the sighting and then went to investigate. While on his way to the house, he saw another person moving in a window on the first floor of the house. He called this in and reported, he's got a spear or a pole. The officer was asked if he wanted backup and he responded that he did and that was the last communication from the officer. When backup arrived in the form of two state troopers and another local officer, they searched the outside looking for their man but couldn't find him. The door at the front of the house was open, so they proceeded inside and scanned the house room by room. They didn't find anyone. They never found anyone. Later that night, two forensic specialists went missing in the house, and that was when we were told about the incidents on the property. The higher-ups at Gatehouse decided that this sounded like it might be in our jurisdiction, so they bought the house and the land around it. It has been three months since acquisition and will be the first agents on scene. Any questions? It's not verified to be anomalous yet, then? It could be dealing with a serial killer or some natural phenomenon? Rick asked, his glasses hanging off the tip of his nose as was normal for him. I didn't know how he could see anything like that. They weren't reading glasses. The man was very nearsighted. Despite finding his lack of proper spectacle etiquette annoying, Rick was actually easy to like. He was a little strange at times, but a nice guy. No, it is not, but the details of the disappearances are enough like other reported anomalies that we have rated this site as hot, which is why we've come with gear, William answered nodding at the black hard cases of supplies we had brought along with us. We want to set up our test instruments inside the house and then head out to a safe distance and observe. We're assuming this anomaly will work like the others we found and we'll stay confined to the space inside the house. It was a strange thing about anomalies, but they tended to find borders and keep to them. I had personally been to a cave with an anomaly, a couple of other houses, and one field that was surrounded by an old barbed wire fence, and that was only a few of my jobs. In each case, the anomalous activity seemed to randomly select some otherwise inconspicuous boundary and hold to it. That was just one of a million things we didn't understand about these events. Other than the reports of shadows, is there any indication of physical manifestations inside the property? Chip was one of our armed recon escorts. He was smart, fast, and great with a rifle. I'd been on three missions with him so far, and he had always been on top of any threats that cropped up. We're not sure what happened to the five people who were slaughtered in the first incident, but we know from reports that the man who was deemed responsible claimed to have nothing to do with the deaths. You know as well as I do that the things that come out of anomalies are never nice. I think it's safe to assume that these things can physically manifest. His grim expression was mirrored in the face of all of us. The things we saw in the line of duty could never be forgotten. It's better to assume the worst in these kinds of situations, he added darkly. The file said we're doing cleanup if the site is active. Are we expecting this to be a simple research and raise operation? Laurie sounded calm and focused. We had worked five missions together, more than anyone else on the team and she was the steadiest person I knew. She had a PhD in particle physics, another in anthropology with a specialization in occult histories, and a third in chemistry with a specialization in non-terrestrial elements. 
She also held master's degrees in astrobiology and data analytics. To top it off, she was ex-military and could knock a flea off the ass of a dog with the custom 9mm she carried on her hip. You know what I think about those. William seemed to expect this question because he had his reply all planned out. Trust me, your reports have been handed to the appropriate parties, but the consensus is that the history of successful anomaly closures outweighs the risk of theoretical complications, so we'll be gathering as much data as we safely can and then burning everything down. The van dropped over a steep hill and I felt an unpleasant lurching in my stomach that stuck with me even after the vehicle had settled again. Great. One more reason to feel terrible, I thought to myself. I wasn't sure where I stood on the closure issue. So far studying and then destroying the sites had shut down all of the anomalies we'd encountered, with the exception of the sinkhole at Site 73 and the cabin at Site 8. Site 73 refused to be closed. No matter what was placed over the opening of the sinkhole, the material degraded and collapsed within a few hours. Additionally, those responsible for attempting to block the sinkhole often became violently and sometimes fatally sick. The cabin at Site 8 rebuilt itself. We tried knocking it down with bulldozers, blowing it up with C4, burning it to the ground, dropping explosives on it, removing the building in its entirety from the property, and encasing the whole thing in molten aluminum. The cabin always returned unharmed, and there was never any witness to how it happened. People left to observe fell asleep. Cameras crackled out. Drones fell out of the sky. An entire group of a hundred armed men marched out of the woods in a trance and couldn't remember why. In the cases of these unbreakable anomalies, we simply bought up the land and set up a perimeter. It was the most you could do. Any other questions? William looked at each of us. We hadn't heard from Shauna or Clay, but the file didn't leave a lot of room for questions. Shauna was our second armed recon. I hadn't been on a mission with her before, but I knew she was experienced. Clay was the newest member of the current team, but even he had been out to four sites. I was glad to be running with experienced people. Everyone had to get their feet wet somehow, but I didn't like having to drag legless torsos out of the water because the water turned out to be corrosive acid. I only wished that was an exaggeration. People who messed up sometimes came home in sandwich baggies. I'd once asked the man who was training me, why do these things do this to us? He had just offered a gruff laugh and said, Why do the stars shine? It's just what they do. These things hate, Ed. It's just what they do. At the time, I'd had it in my head to tell him that the stars shine because they had at some point, billions of years ago, been in the throes of nuclear fusion, and now that light was reaching us. But I kept my mouth shut instead. I'm glad I did. The years since have given me some clarity on the matter, and frankly, my snide thought, while accurate, completely missed the point. We couldn't understand what the things from the anomalies wanted. It's impossible to fathom the thoughts of things that exist in spaces that go between the fabric of one reality and another. You just need to know that part of their existence is an animosity towards humanity that knows no bounds. There was no pleading with them, no making sense of their actions or the ways of their world. The only thing we could do was try and understand how to keep them away from us. The most frightening aspect of these phenomena were the connections. It didn't happen all the time, but occasionally we would discover strands of continuity between the different sites, repeated symbols, sightings of similar figures, direct references to other sites. It was troubling to say the least, it implied some type of organization in the madness, and that was a horror that kept me up some nights. The van pulled to a stop. I want monitoring and command set up inside the hour. William was up already, opening the back of the van and giving us our first look at the house. I looked up at the place, and for just a moment, I thought I saw something up on the roof looking back down at me, but then I squinted and saw that it was just some kind of antenna. It was bent, and there was something hanging from it, but it was difficult to see from where I was. Get our sat link up and connected. We're going to try and run live updates on this one, William ordered. I winced, but kept it to myself. The satellite uplink system was garbage. 
we were piggybacking on an old high-altitude systems that were already stressed with other business. Even with a solid connection to the satellite, which was iffy, keeping a consistent uplink speed was nearly impossible. Still, this was my job, so I'd do what I could. The equipment was in black cases, and as soon as the floor panels were down, I got to unpacking and setting things up immediately. Some of the others were starting to assemble the tent over the top of us. Once command was up, I ran the dish outside and began trying to get a fix on our satellite. I used a compass to get the coordinates and waited for the connection to come up. It didn't. I tried a few more times and then, with a frustrated sigh, moved on to my next task. I'm ready to go in, I told William, collecting the boxes of equipment I needed for surveillance. I hated this part of the job. Entering anomalous sites was always dangerous. It had been years since we had proven that these locations drew energy from living beings within their sphere of influence. Not only did it slowly sap those who entered, but it began working on you immediately, distorting your thoughts and reasoning. We still hadn't determined if this was some kind of targeted attack or if it was just a natural effect that anomalies had on human minds and bodies. I was inclined to believe it was intentional. Once you had felt the sinister touch of these otherworldly manifestations, it became increasingly difficult not to sense a dark intent. Either way, certain drugs could be used to ease the effect on your mind. They were addictive and not great for your health, so we generally reserved them for more dangerous situations. Shauna and Chip followed me as I moved towards the door of the home. The steps up onto the small front stoop were shallow, but I took them slow anyway. Going into a place that was being twisted by an anomaly often felt unpleasant. Sometimes your stomach would lurch or you'd feel a wave of depression and worry. But I didn't get that as I moved closer to the door. At least no more than I already felt it. And that was likely just jitters. As I stepped towards the door, it swung open on its own. Far too fast to have been drawn by the wind and the door was supposed to be locked. Fucking great, Chip sighed. I love it when they start messing with you right away. I reached out and opened the screen door, sliding the lock on the hinge into place so it would stay open. The main door was wide open now. I switched on the flashlight attached to my vest and spilled the glow of warmed LED light across the entryway. The door opened into a hall with stairs along one side and rooms to either side. Looking back through the house, I could see the kitchen at the far end. The place was still furnished, left exactly as it had been on the last day it had held people. Apparently, no one wanted to come back for the furniture. Smart folks. I stepped inside, expecting to feel something on crossing the threshold into anomaly space, but there was nothing. I frowned, surprised by such a lackluster entrance from a place that had opened its own door for me. It was almost worse to have things inside the home so quiet after that little bit of theatrics with the door. Either way, it didn't matter. The equipment needed to set up, and that was my job. I began to place the first sensor suite in the hall. All of the equipment I needed to get in place at each location was in a case no larger than a toaster. There were remote modules that I would deploy as well, but those were about the size of a wallet and went up easily. The main units took a little more work and some consideration of placement, since I wanted to make sure none of the enclosed instruments would be in a place where there was interference. The hall was easy. One main unit, two remotes. I moved to the next room. A layer of dust had settled over everything, but otherwise things looked normal. This could have been anyone's house, but for the smell of long-term vacancy and something else. Something sweet and cloying. I knew the smell. It was associated with anomalies. My two armed escorts were scanning nearby doors and making sure nothing was hiding behind the furniture and I went about setting up the next group of modules. I was constantly aware that something could happen at any moment, but I finished all of the downstairs with not so much as a wayward creak of floorboards. I hope this place turns out to be just another regular spooky house. I'm not up for a repeat of my last job. Shauna spoke quietly as we moved up the stairs. I put another portable module that would sync up with the hall sensor on the wall. You thinking of retiring? Chip asked her. Every single job, I swear, she answered, and we all laughed a little. 
This job was a nightmare in almost literal sense, but there was also something that drew you back to the work. Once you knew the darkness was full of monsters, it could be really difficult to turn your back on it anymore. You couldn't switch the knowledge off. Oh shit, it's him. Shauna's voice made me turn her way. She was looking at a painting hanging to one side of the landing. It looked like something that had been bought at the estate sale of a castle in Germany. It was a portrait of a pale man with an awful smile on his face. He was showing just a little of his teeth, but they seemed to be sharp between his lips, and those thin gray lips were too wide on his face. It looked like if he opened his mouth as wide as he could, it would tip the top of his head all the way back to his neck, like he had the hinged jaws of a snake. The eyes were black from pupil to sclera. His outfit was all dark tones and a formal cut, like the finery a medieval king might have worn. The background of the picture was covered in details that I couldn't make out, but they looked meticulous, penned in lines so tiny I could barely differentiate them. I reached up and thumbed my radio. Command, we have a confirmed sighting of the uncanny man. There is a painting to the left of the stairs on the second floor with a depiction of him. Is this on any of the inventories? One moment, a voice responded. Rick, I thought. I made sure my body cam was pointed at the picture, but I found myself not wanting to look into those black eyes anymore. The uncanny man was a repeating anomalous entity. He wasn't always at the sight of an anomaly, but he appeared enough that we'd been taught to look out for him. It was usually seen at more dangerous locations. Now there are no paintings in the house. We have video confirmation of your sighting from your body cams. Proceed carefully. I'm moving the site status to hot active. Start level two precautions. Finish up quickly. William's reply was exactly what I had suspected. All of us opened a small tin case in one of the many pockets of our vests and pulled out a prep syringe. I removed the cap on mine pressed the needle until a tiny bit of liquid came out. I uncovered the port on my chest and injected the methylphenidate as the others did the same. The sharpened focus came on quickly, as well as that unnatural sense of clarity that made every color a little brighter and every edge a little harder. The other two switched their weapons from single fire to burst fire and released their safeties. We were now hyper alert and extra dangerous, yet that meant almost nothing if things went really wrong. We began to move from room to room, setting up the equipment. The other two were on high alert, and that allowed me to really focus my attention on what I was doing. In fact, with the drugs running through my system, I was almost hyper-fixated on the sensors as it put them up, which is probably why I noticed something strange. The temperature's getting colder as we get near to the master bedroom. I said the words out loud. It was strange that commands hadn't bothered to tell us when they got the readings. How much colder? Chip asked. Twelve degrees from the first room on the left side to this room here. This was the third room. It did feel a bit cooler on my face now that I thought about it. The suits we wore helped regulate body temperatures, but they didn't cover our faces or our hands. The first case took place in that room, didn't it? Shauna dipped her gun in the direction we were headed. I nodded my reply as we headed out of the room we were working in, and made our way towards the master bedroom. Shauna went in first, called that the room was clear, and then Chip and I followed her. The room was empty. There wasn't so much as a single nightstand in place. I deployed my equipment quickly, finding the cool air in the room to be unsettling. I switched on the main unit once it was ready, waited for the lights to say we were all connected, and then got up. Okay, let's... I stopped mid-sentence. Chip was standing by the door looking down the hall. Shauna wasn't in the room. Where's Shauna? I asked, expecting Chip to tell me she went ahead to clear her away, but Chip turned back to the room and I saw him start in surprise as he realized the room was empty but for the two of us and the equipment. She's... she should be right here. I just looked away from her. I turned to look out the door, but she was standing right there by the wall. He gestured to one side of the room, next to a closet door. Shauna? I called towards the closet. There was no reply, but I hadn't anticipated there would be one. I felt a terrible chill go up my spine, and it had nothing to do with the temperature in the room. 
Chip walked over to the door slowly, keeping his gun trained on it. He reached out, taking the handle firmly in his grip, looked at me, then looked back at the door. He threw it open and brought his weapon up, barrel pointed inside. It was empty. On the back wall of the closet, someone had painted a large spiral with a diamond-shaped head at the outer edge of its winding path. It looked like a snake or a flatworm. I'd seen the symbol before, but no one was sure what it meant. The radio beep. Shauna is gone. William's voice had a strained timbre to it. Chip responded quickly. We've lost visual on Shauna. She has been vanished. There was a short pause, and when William came back on, Copy, return to command. Copy, Chip replied, and then we were rushing for the exit. Chip was in front, scanning the area with eyes that were hyper alert. I was not far behind him. I kept looking over my shoulder, expecting to see either Shauna or whatever had taken her away. There was nothing. We crossed the threshold of the door, leaving it open in case Shauna did come after us. I unstopped the screen door and let that fall closed at our back, feeling like I needed to at least put something between us and the house. Once outside, we turned our attention to the van and the command tent, and that was when things became even worse. The tent was destroyed, but the bodies of our friends were skewered on the heavy corner posts as though something huge had picked them up and slammed them face first onto the stakes. The sight of it made every part of me recoil in horror. I felt sick. How had this happened? Anomalies didn't spread outside of their confines. I'd been on enough missions to know when I should be safe, and I should have been safe out on that front lawn. But clearly I wasn't. What the hell's going on? Chip's voice sounded as strained as I felt. You can't leave it. Once it knows you exist, it will never let you go. The voice from behind us had me spinning on my heels. There was a man standing just inside the door. It took me a moment to figure out who he was because I'd only ever seen him in pictures, and the pictures I had seen had been of a very different version of this man. The one before me was covered in scars, as though his whole body had been dragged over a field of razor blades. The skin on his back had been cut into strips and then stretched and hung on bits of iron rods that were twisted into his neck and shoulders, spreading them open like flesh wings that rose just above his head. Mr. Jones, why don't you come out here and we'll get in the van and we can take you to a hospital, get you some help. How I managed to sound calm was a miracle. James laughed and started backing back into the house. No, they've had enough of me for now. It's your turn. I'm sorry. You shouldn't have come here. Chip was already at the van with the sat phone. I could see the dead signal light on the side of the device, but Chip was clearly planning on leaving a repeating message. Gatehouse, this is Site 147. We have multiple team members down in our starting evac. Repeat multiple team members down. Evac in process. I turned and started to head for the driver's side of the van. We needed to leave immediately. The mission was awash. If the anomaly had spread beyond the house, then there was no telling where the actual border was. I was most of the way around the van when a man in black finery stepped out from behind the vehicle, and I drew up short. Oh, no, 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 no. His voice was smooth and deep. You can't just leave without meeting your host. The uncanny man's eyes were so dark that I felt like I was falling into them as I met his gaze, as though everything was falling into them, and it hurt. I had never known that fear could hit a person so hard. My entire body felt numb with it. I thought I might drop dead. I almost wanted to. I heard the sound of a burst of automatic fire from behind me. It startled me back to clarity for a moment, and I looked that way expecting to see Chip taking up aim on the horror in front of me, but instead, I turned to see Chip crumpling to the ground with most of his head missing. The weak ones are no fun. That smooth voice crept into my ears again and I turned back. It was closer now, smiling with a grin that was terrible and wide. There were so many teeth. It was hungry. So hungry. You aren't weak, are you? Let's go meet the 
aching. The worm is famished. It reached out for me, and reality splintered with my mind. Brother Vance has a calling, literally. He can see into the future. A voice speaks to him. A cult figurehead, Father Icarus, takes Vance under his tutelage to help lead his flock. Vance, over time, realizes Father Icarus has evil intentions. Vance decides the voice speaking to him is the only direction he needs. Until it becomes way too uncanny, man. And now, for your indulgence, The Voice by Heath Path. Brother Vance, tell us the latest prophecy. Surely you have seen more by now. The man before me was a wiry, tall creature with hair that seemed to be trying to run from the center of his head as though it might escape from some impending disaster. His eyes were a shade of blue that made ice seem warm, and there was a dullness to his appraisal that told me his thoughts were simple and dark. He dressed in black slacks and a black shirt that showed off his clerical collar, lest anyone forget that he was an ordained priest. He called himself Father Icarus, for he intended to lead us all into the light. Perhaps there had been a time when he was a good man, but that time was gone before I knew him, burned away by his continued attempts to climb into the sun. All that was left was obsession and a steadfast belief that he was in possession of the key to true salvation. He believed I was to be that key, but the truth was that there was no salvation to find. I saw the future, more precisely, the future was spoken to me, whispered in my ear at night while I tried to sleep. The voice of prophecy was like the tone of an old dial phone played across the bones of a washboard made of glass reeds. It rattled the teeth in my skull and stuck like hooks in my cavities, sending sparks of hot wire pain directly into my brain. I wanted to beg it not to speak to me, but it seemed to find pleasure in my pleas and I had long since given up hope of relief. This was the voice of salvation that Father Icarus so believed in. This was the gift they all sought from me, though they hardly understood that it was no gift at all. At first I had stolen positive things from these nightly horrors. I could turn my back to the blackness of the world if only I could find the silver lining at its edge, and not everything whispered into my ear was poison. I prophesied storms and was always right. I told my peers where to plant their farms to avoid terrible floods. I predicted births down to the exact hour and prophesied the rise and fall of political figures. Father Icarus always loved to hear my predictions, and none more so than the one he considered the true sign of my power. I pulled from the ether the winning numbers of the largest lottery in our state's history, and the church reaped the benefits of my prediction. Surely then, my powers were good and just? Surely the source of such great fortune couldn't be evil? The things I kept to myself were the things that showed the true nature of the voice. I told no one about the rise of dark cults across the world. I shared no secrets about the babies born with black eyes and razor teeth that cut their own way from the womb. I wouldn't have known where to start talking about the doorways opening to strange places that let stranger things crawl into our universe. How could I begin to explain that other groups, just like ours, were popping up all over the world and that their good intentions were turning into twisted nightmares? The flock didn't know that I had heard these things as well. They didn't know that the voice of prophecy had told me that the world was ending and that a time of suffering without end was coming. I had been quiet for days, unable to see light in the darkness of my nightly horrors. The worst of the prophecies were all that remained, repeated nightly like a madman's favorite album. Father Icarus was growing impatient. After all, my lack of prophecy made him look bad. 
it made his flock begin to doubt, or so he claimed. The truth was that the father's flock had already accepted him as a newly born savior. I had no idea what he would have to do to chase them away, but it wouldn't be as easy as not giving them a new prophecy for a few days. Surely the Lord has given you another premonition, son, he pressed me. He had been pushing me for days, and so in anger I gave him what he wanted. What gift does he have for us true believers? His nagging had grown to be too much. If it was prophecy he wanted, then it was prophecy I would give him. A great darkness is coming, and it is hungry and eternal. The end of all things to have begun. You will know it's coming by the messenger, a man who speaks for the unspeakable. He will herald the time of madness. The words were etched into my brain and repeating them was easy. Father Icarus's expression faltered, darkened. I thought for a moment that he was going to yell, rant, or rave at me and demand I give him something less dark. But then he smiled. His expression was like the breaking of a storm, but the light that shone through the dark wasn't a pleasant one. There was no hope in this silver lining. I'm not lying, I said cautiously. I know you're not my boy. He seemed honestly pleased, and this I found even more disturbing. This is the kind of prophecy that we've been waiting for since you were first discovered. Can't you see our congregation has lived through the times of light? But what really draws people together is tragedy, hardship. These tribulations that you predict, they are a divine test. We will only grow stronger together, brother. I opened my mouth to protest, but the fervor in the man's eyes was enough to tell me that he wasn't going to listen. Not really. I slipped away as he began his preparations for the end times. I needed to leave this place behind. I'd yet to get a premonition that directly related to Father Icarus and his followers, but I could sense the change in atmosphere. Something bad was coming, and the longer I stayed where I was, the closer it became. The real problem was finding any place that was safe. Where would I go? There are other worlds beyond this one. You only need a key. The voice crackled into my skull and I stumbled mid-step, barely catching myself on a nearby railing. What key? I was talking to myself, but there was no one around to hear me. Go forth and I will lead you. This world is already dead, but you can travel to others. Find the key. Steal the van. I can't just steal the van. People will notice. They'll come looking for me. The words, with their sudden direction, were making my heart beat fast in my chest. Normally, there were no directions. Normally, there was only descriptions of things that were happening or going to happen. This time, the voice seemed to be actually talking directly to me, and I didn't appreciate its notice. Steal the van, Brother Vance. Escape the darkness. Minutes later, I was in the driver's seat of the compound's van. It was a new vehicle, one purchased with the lottery winnings, but it was still a large van, and so it wasn't exactly meant for fast, stealthy escapes. I had never driven it myself. In fact, I'd only driven a few times in my life, and it had been a much smaller car. I caught myself trying to look in every direction at once and forced my eyes to focus on the task before me. The morning was still dark. No one would be out to check on the van. I reached up and flipped down the visor. The key fell down in front of me and I picked it up. It was so easy. Surely if they cared that much about the van, they would have made more of an effort of keeping the keys in a safe place. It was pretty much a sign. Telling myself this allowed me to build enough nerve to put the keys in the ignition and turn the car on. The engine roared to life, filling the air with what seemed like far too much sound. I was committed at that point. There was no going back now that my escape vehicle was running. The door to the compound slammed open and someone stepped out into the early morning dark. Who's in there? A voice yelled. I shifted the van into reverse and slammed on the gas pedal. The vehicle responded with much more enthusiasm than I expected, and a moment later I was tearing my way down the dirt road that led away from the place that I had spent most of my youth.
I was finally going to be free. The odds were good that they would come looking for me before long, but they'd be hesitant to use the police. Not all of the things that happened in Paradise City were entirely legal, though Father Icarus assured us that they were legal in the eyes of God, which I took to mean that they were legal in the eyes of Father Icarus, and that would have to be good enough. Still, it was several hours before I stopped checking the rearview mirror every few seconds for an indication that I was being followed. Freedom, however, was to be short-lived. It was only a few moments after I had stopped checking the mirrors that the voice spoke to me again. Left Vance. It was a simple direction, and I had no plan as to where I would go next, so the direction of the voice was as good as any. Still, listening to it made me feel like I'd given up one abusive overlord for another. Father Icarus was an evil man, and it could be hard to tell at first, but the voice that spoke the prophecies into my head wasn't evil. Evil wasn't a word that could be applied to the kind of darkness the voice represented. If chaos was a natural energy, then that is what the voice would represent. But even knowing that, I followed the directions it gave me. It was either that or be truly alone. And I feared being alone most of all. We drove far off of the main roads until we were on dirt paths climbing heavily wooded hills. At times, things became so bad I wasn't sure that the van would pull through but it always managed. We traveled for more than five hours, but finally we came to the place the voice was leading us. I drove past a heavy steel gate that had been left open. The booth where a guard should have been stationed was empty, the glass broken, and the door swinging wide. It was a clear sign that whoever had left this place behind had done so in a hurry. What was this place anyway? It looked like some kind of military installation. I parked my car on the inside of the abandoned gate and walked up to a door cut into the side of the hill. I had seen enough bunkers on television to know what one looked like, and this place was a bunker. The doors were three feet thick and sealed by massive turning wheels. Well, they weren't sealed now. The double door was hanging open, a cement tunnel crawling away from the entrance and deeper into the hill. A single line of fluorescent bulbs lit the path. Where am I? I asked, not entirely certain what kind of answer I expected to get. This is a place where dangerous things have been kept, but no longer. The key that you need is inside. Follow my directions closely. Going the wrong way here means that you will die a horrible death. That was enough warning to keep me carefully on the path the voice wanted me to follow, even if the logical part of my thoughts were telling me that just getting away from here was the best thing I could do for my hopes at longevity. Going down into this bunker didn't feel like a good idea. Still, the voice had led me this far, and now I felt as though I was committed to the path it was leading me down. I followed the hallway, ignoring the branches and other directions, until I reached a set of stairs that took me down further into the facility. There were security doors, but they'd all been left open some clearly intentionally braced open so they wouldn't shut. It looked like a case of sabotage. I turned a corner on the voice's recommendation and heard the sound of distant screams bouncing down the tunnel in my direction. This caused me to hesitate mid-step. Don't slow down if you want to live. Your time is limited. The chill this sent down my back got me moving again quickly. I walked past doors that looked like they had been pulled from the set of an insane asylum movie. Heavy metal structures with a slot at the top where someone could peer inside. Most of these doors were still shut, but a few of them were open. The voice urged me not to stop and look into the rooms beyond, and so I kept moving. Stop, it finally said, and I turned to an open door on my right side. It's in there. Go retrieve the key. I nodded and walked towards the door. It was already partially ajar, and a part of me wondered if there would be anything left in the room at all. Why was it e-locked away in a facility like this anyway? I pushed the handle on the door and it swung open. Inside, the room was barren except for a pedestal in the very center. Atop the pedestal sat a small black sack. Or perhaps it was brown, and it was actually quite large. The more I looked at the bag, the less certain I was of anything about it. 
It seemed to shift as I turned my head, as though I wasn't seeing all of it at once and I couldn't make my eyes bring it into focus. Is the key in the bag? I asked. You will take the bag, put it in your pocket, and we will leave the same way we came, but faster. So the key is in the bag? I asked again, stepping forward towards the bag even though doing so made my stomach flop as though I was getting motion sick. You are not to open the bag. Just put it into your pocket and leave. Time is running out, Brother Vance. As if to emphasize the voice's words, an unearthly roar echoed down the corridor, cascading off the walls as though searching for the next victim of whatever horror had summoned the sound. I sprang forward on legs that suddenly wanted to shake and grab the bag, shoving it down into my pocket even as a feeling of utter revulsion swept through me, though the revulsion was quickly followed by a strong curiosity. It was an insidious thing, this curiosity, nettling at the back of my mind in an insistent way. It kept asking me if I really wanted to carry a bag whose contents I didn't know. Wouldn't it be better just to give it a single look to make sure it was safe? A quick peek into the bag couldn't hurt. Fortunately for the time being, I had a far more pressing task to pursue and that was my escape from this awful place. I ran back through the halls as fast as my legs would take me and I would have sworn that something terrible was in pursuit. I could feel it at my back, its presence so pressing that I refused to even glance over my shoulder. I knew that if I chanced a single look back, I would be snagged by my pursuer and dragged back into the dark of the tunnels to become just another screaming voice. Somehow I made it back to the van. As I was finally forced to look back the way I had just come, all I saw was an empty doorway. Whatever phantom had chased me through the halls had gone back into the depths, or perhaps had escaped into the world. Either way, I was free to continue my own exodus. I threw the van into reverse and escaped from that place as fast as the little people mover would take me. It didn't feel fast enough. The pall of that nightmare place seemed to stretch far beyond its walls. In fact, even as I rejoined the highway, I could still feel its cold touch upon my skin. This was my second escape of the day, and some part of me knew it was the more dangerous of the two by far. The strange pull of the object in my pocket was just another aspect of that. It clung to my curiosity like a hook caught the gut of an overeager fish. The end of this place is upon us. The voice of havoc rang through my head. Then how do we escape it? I asked, more afraid than I'd ever been before. I didn't want to live in a world that felt as alien as this one now did. I have the key. How do I get out now? The door. The words slipped into my consciousness, bringing them images of an old wood door set in the frame of buildings in what looked like a city alley. If there was something special about the door, I couldn't decipher the fact with just the short vision granted to me, but I knew I wouldn't have to either. The voice was still guiding me, and now I knew where we were going. We traveled on through the night and into the next day. I hadn't slept, and every minute of driving was an agony, a personal fight to stay awake and aware. Before I even knew it, we were pulling off of the interstate and winding our way into the depths of the city. The buildings rose like spires around us, and the angry scream of the traffic kept me alert for this last leg of my journey. Even in this place that was so alien to me, I could sense the change in the world. Shadows moved where they shouldn't, and tempers flared at even the smallest offenses. A man crossing the street against the light was accosted by an angry driver who dragged him to the ground and began beating him savagely as a crowd gathered and cheered him on. I passed a small store where the clerk had drawn a weapon on a kid he had caught stealing a can of soda. Thankfully, I was well past the scene when I heard the telltale bark of weapon fire. A couple caught in a small argument tumbled across the ground, fists flying and hateful words drowning out the laughter of those who had come to watch it all unfold. People were exploding with hate and rage. I moved through them like a man wading into a swift river. I could feel the torrent of madness washing around me, but I kept moving forward. Escape was nearly at hand. I followed the guidance of the voice down a narrow alley and then another that bisected the first the channels between the buildings becoming so narrow that I felt like I could scarcely walk without turning to one side or the other. 
Suspicion was beginning to creep into my mind. Perhaps the voice was leading me into some kind of trap. Was I a fool for following it deeper and deeper into dark places? The object in my pocket seemed to throb with intensity. Maybe, just maybe, looking at it would help clarify the situation for me. Just as those thoughts crescendoed into a body-shaking horror that I was certain would undo me, the door appeared before me, exactly as I had seen it in my vision. It looked old. The building into which it was laid seemed brand new by comparison, and the old brick structure had to be a few hundred years old. Why then did the door look like it had been here far longer than the rest of the structure? It looked like it would more appropriately be set into the wall of a castle, or perhaps found amidst ruins buried in the woods for thousands of years. The wood gave the impression that a solid kick might turn the whole thing into a pile of splinters, but when I reached out and touched the portal, it felt as firm beneath my fingers as the bricks into which it was set. I grabbed the handle and turned it, but it didn't yield so easily to my grasp. There was no keyhole anywhere on the door that I could see, and the panic started to slip back in. How do I open it? Where does the key go? I tried the handle again, taking it with both hands and trying to force it. Calm, Brother Vance. Place both hands on the door and wait. I did as the voice said, though my hands were shaking as I sat them against the worn wood of the door. I laid my palms flat and waited. The door was cold, as though it had no regard for the relatively warm weather that existed around it. It was cold enough that after a few moments of resting my palms upon it, they started to hurt. I was about to repeat my discomfort so the voice knew what was happening, but as I opened my mouth, I felt a click within the door, as if some unknowable lock had just set its pins. Now, open it now, quickly. I scrambled for the handle, twisting it sharply and pushing at the door. It had to push open because there was no way it could be pulled open in the narrow passage. The door fell wide and I toppled through it, my stomach swinging freely as I lost balance and cascaded through the opening. I was overcome by a sensation of movement for a moment, as though I had fallen for much, much further than I could have and then I was laying on the ground righting myself. I heard the slam of the door behind me and I turned quickly to see that, indeed, the door had shut itself in my wake. What I didn't understand was how the door was sitting at an angle above me, apparently lodged in the side of an old tree. The frame was exactly how it had been on the other side, but the position was impossible. I could not have stepped through a door in an alley and walked out of a tree and, well, I wasn't certain where the tree was but a quick look around me told me I was nowhere near a city. Forest spread out around me as far as I could see in any direction. I couldn't even hear a car or an airplane. Wind rippled through the branches of the trees and I shivered. It was cold in this new place. The trees had cast off their leaves and the taste of snow was in the air. I was ill-dressed for such weather in my light slacks and short-sleeved t-shirt. Where am I? I asked not yet feeling the relief I had hoped to feel upon passing through the door. This place felt strange, if not as tainted as the one I had left. So ungrateful, Brother Vance. A voice rose up to my left and I almost fell over my feet, turning to see who it was. Some terrified part of my mind told me it was going to be Father Icarus, that he had followed me all the way to this new place and he was going to be furious. But it wasn't the mad father who faced me. It was something far worse. The voice had spoken of this one. He had eyes as black as the space between stars and colder than the ocean in winter. His smile stretched too far in his face as though his mouth could open his head in half and he might devour a man whole, though he was no bigger than one himself. Still, large though he might not have been, his presence was vast. He was a beacon of maliciousness that flared like black fire where he stood. We brought you all the way to this new safe place. And all you do is complain that you're cold and the world is strange. That is behavior most unbecoming of a man of your accomplishments. The uncanny man spoke with a voice plump with false sincerity and one that addressed thoughts I hadn't even given words to. My body shivered 
not from the cold, but from facing this nightmare in the flesh. What accomplishments, I managed to ask, for I had done nothing but run away. Why, you've done the most important thing a man can do in service to the worm, Brother Vance. You moved the beacon to a new world. It smiled then, thousands of teeth filling the wretched gap in its face. You've brought the worm to a new place to feast. As a reward, we will let you watch as this new world is consumed. I shook my head. No, I, I, I was just trying to get away. The dark creature laughed. <laughs> Our heroes are often born of cowardice. It is fear that lets us inside, that empties out a place for us to take root and brother Vance. I promise you that we are rooted in the very fabric of who you are. We chose you to carry our prophecy, and then we chose you to carry the beacon. You were our champion from the very first time you woke up sobbing from one of our visitations, and we have feasted on your misery ever since. It drove you right into the hands of Father Icarus, and now his compound is burning with all of the precious flock tucked away inside. You helped to do that, Vance. You should be proud. Their screams burn brighter than the carbon in their bones. Laughter seemed to echo all around us, rising as if from some damned audience, and it was joined by the sounds of people screaming in heart-wrenching agony. I fell to my knees, shaking in horror. The uncanny man shook his head. Tisk, tisk, brother Vance. There is no time for sloth. Our master hungers. I hope you enjoyed both tales, Anomaly, as well as The Voice, written by Heath Paff and performed by yours truly, Paul J. McSorley. To find more from Heath Path, please visit simplyscarypodcast.com backslash path, spelled P-F-A-F-F, and you'll be redirected to his author profile on our horror fiction website, creepypastastories.com, where you'll find ways to follow him on his website of foxesmind.com. That's O-F-F- O-X-S-M-I-N-D.com, as well as a link to his work on Amazon.com by clicking his Amazon link on that profile. A small portion of your purchase goes to us here at Chilling Tales, where we are proud Amazon affiliates to help make this show possible. If you enjoyed tonight's story, hosted by yours truly, Paul J. McSorley, you can search my name on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for additional previous stories. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks. Available now on audible.com or just visit paulsbooks.net. That's P-A-U-L-S-B-O-O-K-S dot net. You can also find me personally on Facebook and Twitter. And with that, listeners, our weekly journey into the psyche has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And while you're at it, please remember to stop by our Apple Podcast page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and subscribe. The charts are based on subscriptions, not listens. So if you haven't subscribed yet, I'd really appreciate it. 
I'm your host for Fear from the Heartland, Paul J. McSorley. I've enjoyed the titillation tonight. Ooh, there's that word again. Thank you for joining me. Hope to see you again next week at Fear from the Heartland.